My point is this, science communication is hard and the scientists aren't making it any easier. Everyone, welcome to Nerdin' About. I'm Space Michael, and with me, as always, is someone who's not only good at catching rats, crocheting, knitting, but she's also pretty good at playing the guitar and singing. And that's Dr. Kaylee Byers. Wow, how's it going, Kaylee? I'm well, thank you. That was a deep cut. Where did that come from? <laughs> well, that came from because I was reflecting uh, on Banff because uh, we're with our guest today, and how on the last day on Banff, you brought out the guitar and sung us a little song, and I thought it was really great. I did a little. Red- rendition of knocking on heaven's door but about chronic wasting disease (laughs) (laughs) instead (laughs) way to way to throw back so we're gonna reminisce a little bit today because we actually met our guest jay ingram a year ago at banff beakerhead and it was an incredible experience where michael and i learned a lot about how to be better science communicators and maybe also better people (laughs) and so it is our absolute (laughs) delight to introduce to you jay ingram who is the former host of cbc radio's quirks and quarks and daily planet on discovery channel canada jay has also written 19 books several of which are currently on my bookshelf including the science of why number four and theater of the mind and on top of all of that, Jay is also the co-founder of the Calgary Arts and Engineering Smashup called Beakerhead that we just mentioned. Hi, Jay. Was that a good enough intro for you? Your, your intro was a bit more interesting, though. <laughs> and you know what? We take no responsibility for trying to make you better people. I mean, that was really up to you. We hope we could make you better science communicators. And let's not forget that Michael came to Jasper last October and was part of a musical show that me and my band did about the furor over the 50th anniversary of landing on the moon. So when Michael played uh, actually a starring role as a guy who had lived and worked on the moon and hated it. (laughs) So exactly what I wanted at the end of that show. Because, you know, people that come to the Dark Sky Festival in Jasper, that's what it was, they're kind of misty-eyed about stars and galaxies. And going to the moon is like a big deal, and I'm sure many of them would like to do it. And I kind of felt, having read the appropriate black, dark science fiction about the moon, that we needed another voice, and who better <laughs> than the guy who can be really dark when he wants to be? Michael Unger. Well, well, we're gonna well, we'll get into that uh, um, as we're going to talk about optimism and pessimism, as I think that's sort of like a theme, you know, as we're talking, you know, about science communication, uh, Jay. And there's uh, such a push right now towards better science communication. There's a growing community of science communicators who work to communicate science. But in your opinion, are scientists becoming better science communicators? Uh, I have to go. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that was quick. <laughs> Look, I mean, I think that there's, you're definitely right. There's much more attention being paid. I didn't call it lip service, you'll know. I called oh. it attention being paid to communicating science better. I would say that a greater number, greater percentage of young scientists are more interested in that at this point in their career than was true 25 or 40 years ago. So I think that's encouraging. I think that um, once you get to principal investigators and higher up, there's a definite lack of interest. 
It just, and you know, look, you might think, because I've done this all my life, that, that I would resent that. But I totally understand that a scientist has on his or her desk grant requests, teaching responsibilities, administrative responsibilities, research. And then you're asking them to, you know, do some courses or do some presentations, do some science communication. There's not a lot of room on that desk for that. And it's not really generally rewarded in the academe. So I'm not surprised that once people are fully ensconced in their careers, uh, they're not that uh, interested in it. So that's part of it. I think there's probably been an upswing. But I also think that, you know, science communication isn't easy. Doing it well is not easy. It takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of skill. And it takes a lot of time to do it well. So, you know, I applaud the I applaud the speaking out about the need for science communication. I just wish more people put their money where their mouth was. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I that that's something I've definitely experienced having gone through academia. There's been very few, and I've been lucky to have a few people who are very encouraging of actually doing science communication and working on skills, going to things like Beakerhead and getting better at it, but. There was also uh, a general mentality that it was sort of a waste. It was sort of a waste of time. You should just be investing in publishing papers, for example, or speaking to other scientists. Hey, you're a scientist. That's what you should be doing, science. And you know, we only have to, uh, well, not even just look to the United States regarding COVID, but look to um, some provinces in this in this country, including Alberta, and see that the science messages are not getting through the way you'd like them to because they're meeting the implacable foe of politics and let's not let the economy slow down. And so, you know, there are great communicators about COVID out there. They're not being listened to as much as I would like. And being listened to is part of good science communication too. But, you know, it's hard. I mean, it's hard uh, like doctors I don't know how doctors can spare the time to um, to talk about it because they're if they work in a hospital they're overwhelmed. So all I'm saying is, yeah, I'd, I'd love it to. Um, I'd love more people to get involved. Um, I have seen people go through the BAF program that um, you know we started back in 2005 and become exemplary science communicators. That's really good. I'm glad you guys are doing this. And I just hope that momentum builds, that's all. So if we think a little bit about those principal investigators or those PIs, I mean, one of the ways that they are communicating science is through academic papers. And you might be able to engage with that if you're not a scientist and you might not. What are some of the things that principal investigators are doing that are are keeping people from engaging with with their papers? Let's say you've written it, you've made it open access, it's there. What are the other barriers there for people to actually understand what's happening in that paper? the way you wrote it. <laughs> let, let me, um, I'm glad you asked that. I'm so, so glad you asked that question, Kaylee, because I'm going to give you guys just a few things about, and my point is this, science communication is hard and the scientists aren't making it any easier. Let me tell you first about acronyms. Now, uh, acronyms, you know what? There's def- different definitions, but an acronym, in, to my mind, should be something that is a string of letters, but sounds like a word. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So uh, let me give you some uh, good examples. UNICEF, AIDS, 
POTUS, radar. Those are all radar is radar uh, radio detection and ranging. You pretty much know the others, the other things. I think laser is one as well. I'm glad that you told me what radar was because <laughs> I didn't know what it was. Yeah, well, I, I'm not sure I would have picked it up right away. So those are true acronyms. And funnily enough, the World Health Organization, nobody ever says who, I don't think. It's too confusing. That doesn't really count. Then there are others that are equally familiar to you, but don't really make words. PTSD, NDP, DNA. So um, I like the definition that says those ones that I just mentioned that are collections of letters but don't make kind of words are not acronyms. They're initialisms. Initialisms. Yeah, they're initialisms. They're not really acronyms. Okay. My favorite paper of the last several months was published in an online journal called eLife. It's a good journal. But here's what these people did, okay? And this is mind-blowing at many levels. They looked at 25 million titles of scientific papers plus 18 million abstracts between 1950 and 2019. So 70 years worth of science publishing, okay? Looking at over 40,000 combined titles and abstracts. How many acronyms do you think they found? Well, no, I'll ask you some questions later. You got to get the groundwork. Okay. (laughs) 1.1 million acronyms. Oh gosh. 1.1 million. The number of acronyms per 100 words has more than tripled in that time from 1950 to 2019. In titles, in abstracts, it's more than quadrupled. I want you to consider something funny, and I will ask you about this. There are 17,576 possible three-letter acronyms like DNA. 17,576. What percentage of these random possibilities have actually been used as acronyms in the scientific literature. I feel like I'm in my comprehensive exams right now. Well, just take a shot. 15,576 possible three-letter combinations. Is it more than half? Okay, I'm putting you down for more than half, but that's pretty ambiguous. I'll give you 60%. I'll take 40% for $500. Uh, 94%. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. So really, there aren't that many that have never been used. But if we wait long enough, they will be. Now, how many acronyms are just used once in one scientific paper and are never used again? Oh, my gosh. Uh, 30%? Exactly. Exactly yes. 30%. That completely defeats the point of the acronym. Mm-hmm. Is, doesn't it? Isn't, isn't the whole point to like shorten up a word? Like to shorten up a group of words? It, it, so the, the point, you might think the point is to cut down the number of words in your papers. But in the end, the effect is the opposite. Let me just give you a couple more. How many are used a lot? And by a lot, now remember, we're talking um, many millions of titles, more more than 40 million titles. How many are used, say, more than 10,000 times? 10%. I'll go, I'll go higher. I'll go, I'll, go, uh, I'll go 30%. Yeah, no, you should have gone lower. 0.2%. <laughs> and their lifetime is shrinking too. And the time between the first appearance of an acronym and its second appearance is getting longer and longer. I think because it's the same scientists 
who invented it who will use it again and they have to take time to do experiments and prepare a second paper because nobody uses their damn acronym. Uh-huh. Now, do you think acronyms help? Uh, there are a lot of people who have pointed out, you know what, they don't help at all because by the time you get halfway through the paper and you know six acronyms have been thrown at you, you can't remember which one is which. You have mm-hmm. to keep flipping back. You take more time to read the paper and understand it than it would have taken the authors to spell them out. <laughs> My point, this is not making science writing any easier, okay? They are not a boon to communication. They're a barrier. Uh, I don't want to get too serious about this, but, you know, some of them, hey, actually, I can ask you what, there, there's a top five acronyms. I wonder how many of them you guys know. Uh, DNA, you know that one. Yeah, I was going to say DNA. And then I was like, wait, is that an acronym or an initialism? <laughs> uh, it doesn't matter. Let's call it an acronym for the purposes. And you do know what it stands for, right? Deoxyribonucleic acid. Yeah. Did you know that uh, back in the 40s and 50s, uh, especially in Britain, it had a different name. It was desoxy. There was an S. Oh. Yeah. Anyway, CI is the second most common commonly used acronym. Confidence interval? Yes. Yes. Hey, you win a beer. Yes. Um, <gasps> is another one OR? OR is in the list, but OR is one of those ones that actually has more than one meaning, and that creates a problem, as does this one, IL. IL has two two meanings in the literature. Uh, what field? What field of science are we in? I'm not giving hints. You're supposed to stimulate clarity. <laughs> Mostly just making me sad. <laughs> IL. One is biological. One is sociological, independent living. But what about the other one? Come on, Kaylee. Interleukin. Okay. Uh, HIV, human immunodeficiency virus, of course, and mRNA uh, messenger uh, ribonucleic acid, which is a big, it's in the news. Imagine messenger RNA is in the news because um, the COVID vaccine that Pfizer is creating is based on mRNA. Yeah, maybe uh, maybe the use of mRNA is going to pass IL. <laughs> or maybe eventually make its way into the OR. <laughs> so I guess, Jay, what, what, the, what this is leading me to start to think about, because we're talking about abstracts, we're talking about papers that are generally written for other scientists. But what we're talking about here is communicating to the general public. And that not, not necessarily is the job of the scientists, but quite often is being done by non-scientists. And is this really where our problem is right now, is that we have perhaps people interpreting these papers and either getting confused or really uh, reading the paper the wrong way? Like, Where is really like this problem with the scientists uh, using these acronyms and the general public that needs to understand it? Yeah, it's not a, you're right. It's not a direct link to the general public. And the only point I'm making here is that if you're a science communicator and you want to get the information out of a scientific paper quickly and efficiently and clearly, acronyms are not helping. But let me just, uh, I've got a couple of uh, little favorite things that I should tell you about this. The American Chemical Society produced something called the ACS Style Guide. And in the ACS style guide, it advises writers to, quote, avoid abbreviations in the title of a paper. The ACS style guide. (laughs) Now, I just came across one tonight, today, a new one. The Drosophila Individual Activity and Monitoring Detection System, which 
of course, we will all come to know better as diamonds. Drosophila, individual activity and monitoring, then they stuck in an O, because there's no O coming up, detection system. Yeah, so they decided they wanted it to be diamonds first, probably. I don't know. I'm sure there was a better choice. Michael, you'll like this. Douglas Adams, of course, the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, pointed out 20 years ago that when you're talking about uh, the internet, www, the shorthand, actually has more syllables than World Wide Web. (laughs) Anyway, the the people who take this a little more seriously than me suggest that really it's up to the journals. And some journals have started to, uh, to put in place guidelines like no more than three acronyms in a paper. Okay, let me move on. Readability. This was a mega experiment of the same kind over a longer period of time, but fewer data points. 700,000 abstracts from 1881 to 2015. And they tested the readability by with two different methods that look at the number of syllables per word, the number of words in a paper, and the difficulty of individual words. And there's been a steady decrease in readability because there are more syllables, more words, more difficult words. But I got to tell you, for my money, the best paper ever on this was published a while ago, 1992, by Donald Hayes, a sociologist at Cornell who's now passed away, called The Growing Inaccessibility of Science. And he was concerned about non-specialists. So here's what he did. He rated what's called the lexical difficulty, the number of difficult words in pieces about science that people might read. And he set the scale, a vertical scale. So zero was an international English language newspaper, The Guardian, The New York Times, Washington Post, Globe and Mail, right? That's zero, the level of language in that. Everything higher than that is more difficult. Everything lower is less difficult. So papers in Nature, Science, and Cell in the high 30s to mid 50s, above zero. I believe that. What's more interesting is the what's below zero. Discover Magazine, good science magazine, I'd say, Mm -hmm. minus 4.7. Adult books, fiction, American. Sorry, adult books? Like sexy books? Novels. Oh. <laughs> adult books, fiction, American, minus 19.3. Uh, Ranger Rick, which is the American equivalent to Owl Magazine, minus 22. I had a subscription to that. Cool. Well, you were reading at a minus 22 level. <laughs> I don't know if that was a burn, but it was pretty good. In the end, no, in the end, he'll be proud of it. Uh, comic books, British and American, minus 26. Yeah. Children's books, fiction, British, minus 27. Children's books, fiction, American, minus 32. And here we come, my fellow science communicators, to the nub of this. Adult to adult convert, not adult in the sense you were just saying. (laughs) Adult to adult conversations, casual, minus 41.1, 90 points away from the science papers. Wow. And there are two more data points. Mothers talking to their three-and-a-half-year-old children, minus 48. That's only seven points lower than adult-to-adult conversations. Well, adults are just large children, so, yep. And the final data point, minus 59.1. Farm workers talking to their dairy cows. Oh. I was going to say, Kaylee, you talking to your cat. Like, where, where does that fall in? I use, I use acronyms with her all the time, so I'm probably at a solid plus 10. 
uh, I actually, when I first came across this paper and Donald Hayes was still alive, I called him and asked him specifically what farm workers were saying to their dairy cows. And he said, well, not much, mostly swearing. <laughs> but those are just a bunch of four-letter words, right? Yeah, they're very short. So my point is, though, adult-to-adult conversations, which is really what we're having now, a casual conversation, this is where I think science communication should rest. Mm-hmm. And it's 90 points less difficult than a typical scientific paper. So that's the challenge. And, you know, frankly, we could go on and on and I won't, but the challenge is not just in the language. It's the way scientists approach a problem versus the way uh, somebody who isn't a scientist might think of a problem. It's the, it's the kind of goals, you know, how, how do you, how do you develop this thinking so you can actually devise an experiment that might give you an answer. It's a completely different way of thinking for many people. And I've always felt the goal is adult to adult, adult to adult conversation is what you want to achieve. Yeah, I like that. I mean, and that's something that or we have always enjoyed about Nerd Night is that's the whole point of it is that it's essentially adult to adult conversation with beer. Yeah, exactly. And that's why it's successful. Now, I don't, I don't want to hog this podcast, but I could take two minutes and tell you about the Phantom article. Oh, I would love to know, but I just thought you were one of the hosts. Aren't I a guest? <laughs> Isn't that what's happening right now? No, that was a burn. <laughs> no, tell us, tell, tell us about the Phantom paper. I would like to know because you did tease me with the Phantom paper a few days ago. And so I'm, I've, been, I've been sitting on the edge of my seat waiting to hear about it. Okay, there's a paper that you can find mentioned 400 times in Web of Science and many more times in Google Scholar. It is called The Art of Writing a Scientific Article. It's in the Journal of Science Communication, Volume 163, Number 2, pages 51 to 59. The authors are Vandegeer J., Hanrods J.A.J., and Lupton R.A., published in 2000. Mm-hmm. It does not exist. The, the article doesn't exist. It was written, or what I just read you, the citation of it, was given as an example in a, in a volume that was trying to suggest to people how you should write a bibliography. And somebody just made it up off the top of their heads, and it now has been quoted hundreds and hundreds of times. So there was a guy who decided to try to find out a little bit more, and he looked at, of all the articles that quote this phantom paper, he took the top 20 of them that were the most cited, so figuring they were the most credible. He found 12 of the 20. <laughs> in eight of the articles, this phantom reference was used to support a statement in the article that was completely unrelated to the topic of the phantom paper. That is, you know, writing a scientific article. In three of the four remaining articles, the reference wasn't even actually listed in the article itself, although it was in the references. So you could find it in the references of the paper, but you couldn't find it anywhere in the paper. And in the last case, the phantom paper wasn't listed in either the article or the references. And yet Web of Science, mega uh, information source, reported this article as citing the phantom reference. So it doesn't exist. People will continue to cite it. Maybe you should cite it, Kaylee. And, and I've been sitting here thinking, I'm like, have I cited this paper? <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, all my research is about rats and mite genitals, so I don't think I've had the opportunity. So we've got phantom papers. We've got wild use of acronyms and initialisms. We've got issues with readability. How, 
what do we do, Jay? How do we, how do we overcome this? What do we need to do? I think the main principle, if you want to be a good science communicator, is over-research. And really, I use over sort of incorrectly because I don't think it's possible to over-research. But the, the deeper you get into a subject and the more references you seek, and then the more references from the references that you find, you will uncover these kinds of things where you, you'll find um, certain papers are written much more clearly than others that basically say the same thing. And so you rely on them. If, if you come across a phantom article, I, I'm not sure how many there are out there, you'll detect that. So, you know, and even if, even if you're really up on your scientific vocabulary and you deal with acronyms easily and, you know, you don't mind big polysyllabic words, researching in depth is still the most important thing. And here's why. Like, I know, Kaylee, if I ask you about rats and Michael, if I ask you about uh, fast radio bursts or something like that, you guys both know a lot about those subjects and can talk to me and it could be two minutes, five minutes, eight minutes, whatever, because you know them really well. And I, I just picked radio bursts, but it could be, you know, anything galactic. Well, FRBs. Yeah, thank you. They are FRBs too. That's the best part. <laughs> I didn't sneak that one by you. But, you know, but then you, you also will be comfortable in the fact that there are subjects you, you don't know that kind of detail. And therefore, you can't just spontaneously talk for five or seven or eight or nine minutes. You know, one of the first freelance gigs I had was on a national CBC radio program, now extinct, called Morningside. Peter Zosky was famous for being the host, but there were other hosts. My gig was to go in on whatever, a Wednesday morning, do 10 minutes on any scientific topic I wanted. So I would just tell them I'm doing smallpox okay fun. this is a long yeah, time ago. Small, smallpox was just being uh, eradicated in somalia and that was those were the last cases so i knew i was going to be on for 10 minutes but i had no idea what the host was going to ask me and so i basically prepared half an hour's worth of material mm -hmm. and then it didn't matter where the conversation went because i could pick up that thread well, I'm exaggerating. I couldn't always, but pick that thread up, bring it back to what I wanted to say. That's what I term over-researching. You prepare more material than you need. You know what? It's also good from another point of view, and that if, if I asked you, honestly, Kaylee, tell me everything you know about rats, and then we had to only, we were only able to use a third of it. Well, you know, in, in having over-researched, you knew how to tell the story. You knew what the main parts of the story were. You knew what the subplots were. You would organize it. You'd be able to deliver the package. And it, it's just, you're much, one, everybody is more comfortable talking in an adult-to-adult -adult conversation type of situation about something they know like the back of their hand. And, but if you just read about it this afternoon and you're not really sure where all the threads of the conversation go, you're not going to be as good. Before we get to, we got some big uh, audience questions coming at you, Jay, but I have one final question that I want to ask you, Jay. So one of the lessons that I remember uh, you talking about at Beakerhead was not to take ourselves seriously and not to be afraid to be silly and have fun. 
Where does Jay Ingram find that joy, that silliness in science communication? Where does your passion lie in science communication? Well, you know, I think two ways for me and, and, you know, other people have other ways. The books that I've been writing recently, the Science of Why series, have some, um, you know, have, have some things that really appeal to kids. I wouldn't say they're silly exactly, but they're lighthearted. Let's put it that way. You know, it can't, it can't all be heavy. Science sort of carries with it a weight that um, is part of the reason that um, people are anxious about it and get put off and, and don't want to engage with it because they think it's all incredibly heavy and quite often um, associated with bad news, climate change, air pollution, COVID, and so on. The other thing that I really have enjoyed over the last 10 years is giving talks with a, uh, with a band. And the idea there, it's not so much silliness, but music injects an emotional color to a science talk that quite often the science talk won't have in and of itself. And it, it elevates, I think, when it works well, it elevates the mood. And, you know, when you're communicating with somebody, and again, I come back to adult to adult conversation, if the mood isn't good, the conversation isn't good. Well, speaking of uh, music, should we listen to a little music segue into audience questions? What a hilarious segue. <laughs> I liked your segue. Yes. We, let's go on to audience questions. Why is the sky? What's at the center of a black hole? When we evolve, does anyone have free will? Why is like carbon based? the fastest thing on earth. Why do we keep pets? It's time for listener questions. All right. If you want to get in on the audience questions, we post them on our social media at NerdNightYVR, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Uh, and our first one comes from Russ. Jay, how do you define your audience? Generally knowledgeable or not? How do you cater to the entire spectrum? Well, audiences differ. So you, you, have, to, you have to know to whom you're speaking or writing. So I, I'll give you an example. I've, I've given several talks on Alzheimer's disease, and I can say pretty categorically that when people come to a talk on Alzheimer's, they have three questions in their minds. Am I going to get it? Mm-hmm. What can I do to mitigate that risk that I'm going to get it? And if I do get it, what then? Because that really covers all of the potential, there are very few, there are really no treatments, but where the research is going, it deals with the genetics, which is what clouds most people's minds. They, they have a great aunt who got late onset Alzheimer's and they're afraid that's going to commit them to it. And of course it's not. And in the middle of that, what can I do to, to mitigate the risk? There's a whole host of things that you can monitor in your life and fix. And each of them will lower your risk. And that ranges everything from eating properly, exercising, maintaining social contacts. Uh, if you have hearing loss, get hearing aids, et cetera, et cetera. There's many of them. You can reduce your risk, just your random risk of getting Alzheimer's by about 40% by doing all those things. So in the audit, that's an audience that I think I know pretty well. Other audiences are much more dif- dif- diverse you know, then you, I, I never go in assuming people are knowledgeable. I think that people are intelligent and curious. That's how we used to uh, think of it at Quirks and Quarks. They don't know anything about this particular subject or very little, but they're curious to know more about it. And so our guest 
has to do that job of connecting with what little they know. I mean, you can, you know, you can usually guess, like with rats, you can usually guess that they know something about how big they are and maybe where they live. But you can take those connections you're sure of, don't assume any other connection, and then start to build out uh, from that. So audiences are always different. And, you know, I would always say the more research you do about your audience, and boy, when I was in TV, it was exhaustive. We, we actually, at Discovery Channel, they created a persona called Discovery Dan. And through focus groups and questionnaires and everything, they had amassed information about this ideal, typical Discovery viewer. What kind of car he drove, how many kids he had, did he have a home workshop, what kind of house did he live in, what sort of job did he have, how much, what was his income. And so that's smart, except that what happens over time is that you tighten the focus on what you're going to do on your show to suit that person. And that person doesn't represent all of your audience. And so you end up being less, to my mind, less and less creative. Okay, we have a question from Farah who asks, what are your thoughts on the current landscape of science communication in Canada and the gaps we should be mindful of? That, that is a, a gigantic question. So, you know, it, it, let me just refer back to part of the conversation we had early on. And that is, you know, efforts are being made and I applaud that. People like science centers are getting more creative in how they, they present their uh, information to the public. Uh, more scientists are active on social media, mm -hmm. and some of them are really, really good. You guys both know Sam Yamin, and you know who. Yeah, she's fabulous. Incredibly active on um, Instagram, so that proliferation is all good. And as we also discussed, there are many more initiatives to improve science communication across the board. So all of that is good. I think that what I would like to see, and I, I mean to identify one gap that I think could be closed up a bit, I'd want to see more art infused into the science communication. Mm. And whether that's visual art, whether sculpture, music, poetry, spoken word, anything like that, and maybe not just, okay, I'm, I'm going to write a bunch of science poems, but just infuse the science a little bit with uh, a poetic sense. That may sound a bit vague, but, you know, you mentioned Beakerhead earlier. And then when we started Beakerhead, it was really supposed to bring art, engineering, and science together and see what that mix would produce. And it was a novel idea. And it worked really well. And, and so I'd just like to see it become a little more diverse not only in the presentation, but of course, in the people who are doing it. And, and call back to previous guests, uh, Sean Hercules with Science is a Drag. Drag artists, you know, talking about uh, their science. Great opportunity that I, that I would also love to see more of as well. Exactly. And you know why? Because then it normalizes it to the rest of society. It doesn't stand aside as this oh, difficult to understand, kind of pretentious, you know, intellectual elite sort of activity. Um, and people are going to listen more to what scientists say if they feel there are people like them.
Our final question comes from Natalie, who says the pandemic situation has thrust us educators into online teaching, many of us against our will. But I've started to shift my perspective into that of opportunity. You've been communicating science via radio. What advice do you have for educators who are navigating the situation and trying to effectively communicate science and engage learners online amongst a sea of viral internet garbage and misinformation? Well, that's a tough question because I don't have to teach online. I've done some stuff online, but uh, not anywhere near uh, as much or as challenging as teachers are experiencing. And, and I know that it's incredibly uh, difficult. I think, though, that I, I, what I would do as a first step is resist the temptation to throw a bunch of technology at it. And so, you know, students are watching a screen. If you're lucky, you can't tell because they've turned their video off. They've muted their microphone. That actually is a huge issue, right? No feedback whatsoever. But, you know, I also know um, professors who uh, engage with their classes very effectively on a kind of personal level. They, they, don't, they don't allow a distance to grow between them and the class. And I think that I think that's the first step that you have to establish a comfortable respect respecting relationship between the teacher and the classroom and vice versa. And then you can worry about introducing images, slides, text, whatever. But, you know, I, I feel that when it comes to science anyway, and I'm stepping away from this online teaching question for a sec to say that a, a talk with really great slides is a great talk, but a talk with average slides isn't. And most science talks that I've seen, mo I would say most, always have bad slides in them. And, and the slide, the existence, the mere existence of the slides tilts the attention of both the audience and the speaker. And a, a more effective speaker is speaking right to you. It's adult to adult conversation. Again, you know, you ever had a conversation where you're holding up like flashcards to somebody to illustrate your point? You don't do that. And so I, while I admit that slides are sometimes essential, the design of them, the thought that goes into them is crucial. So if I were forced into an online teaching situation, I would do my best to make it, to personalize it, to make it very clear the structure, like here's where we're going with this, with with this conversation, and then hope that as things ramped up, then you could start putting in slides or whatever that would enhance music. Who knows? That would enhance the the lessons. Well, uh, should we nerd out? Yeah, let's nerd out. What you nerding about? What you nerding about? If you want to get on the Nerd Outs, once again, you can hit us up on our social media at NerdNightYVR. You can also email us, Vancouver at NerdNight.com. Kim sent us her Nerd Out. She is nerding out about chess strategies and tactics. Jay, did you ever do a chess segment on Daily Planet? Uh, no. We, did, we actually did some math segments, and those were bad enough. <laughs> So you, you've all been watching The Queen's Gambit, right? Obviously. I just finished it last night, actually. Yeah, so did we. Well, I mean, the thing that that program did for us was 
make us wish in a way that we could be as involved in the development of the play as experts are. And, and also to the history of the game is fantastic. You know, in other, in professional sports, you, you don't hear about the history very much. It's all kind of about today. But uh, throughout that series, right, every, every, every episode had references to lists, books about past games. We never did that on TV, though. Is that what you're nerding out about, Chess? Or do you have something else you want to nerd out about, Jay? Um, octopuses. Oh, you're taking my nerd out? <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing? Well, I'm going to do octopuses after you do it. Okay, we can have a joint nerd out about o- octopuses. First of all, how, what's the plural of octopus, Jay? What do you think? It is not octopi. No, it's not. It's either octopuses or octopods. I feel very strongly about octopods, <laughs> <laughs> octopodes, <laughs> deriving from the Greek. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. Okay, so mine is a little bit esoteric, but octopuses have um, some unique genetic mechanisms. They're not completely unique, but they have much more of them than, say, we and uh, other animals do. And and they look they they're quite interesting. And they it's suggested that they don't allow they won't allow octopuses to evolve quickly as quickly as other animals, but it will allow them these they they will allow them to respond quickly to environmental change. So you know what I mean? Short-term change, yes. Long-term development, not. Mm-hmm. Some scientists, and I'll tell you who they are in a sec, took this to mean that octopuses must have come from outer space because, because they're just so different from all the rest of uh, the animals and uh, fish and birds that uh, live on Earth. And so they, they concocted a scenario uh, octopus eggs frozen on a meteorite, meteorite lands on Earth, uh, the eggs survive, they develop into octopuses, and that's why we have them today. Now, if you just read the paper, you'd think, well, that's kind of weird, but sort of interesting. But if you looked at the list of authors, you would I recognized many names. And these are all people who have been beating the drum for decades to say that life came from outer space. And one of them, Chandrawick Ramasinghe at the University of, I think he's at Cardiff University in Wales, used to co-write with Fred Hoyle, who was a great astronomer in the 50s and, well, all the way up. He actually coined the term Big Bang, although he, he meant it to be a criticism. And then it got taken up as, as the word everybody liked. But Fred Hoyle and, and Wick Ramasinghe got on this thing about how the flu, the pandemic 1918 flu, must have come from space because it seemed to pop up independently in different parts of the world. And how could it transmit it from human to human and do that? And uh, Fred Hoyle is dead, but Wick Ramasinghe is continuing this campaign and many of his colleagues to prove that life came from outer space and their latest exemplar was the octopus. Well, that's pretty great. I So my nerd out isn't, it doesn't quite bring together octopuses in space, but I have been nerding out about a new article that just came out. And here's my example of not knowing all that much about it, but being very interested. So there was a new paper from Geisen et al. in the journal Cell, which I think we've just learned is not that accessible. Is that correct? <laughs> it's one of the ones that's not that accessible. I must say, I did feel that reading the paper. But essentially what the paper talks about is the ability of octopuses to taste with their arms. Now, apparently we've known that for a while. I am not among the people who knew that, but I thought it was really interesting. And this paper found that the suckers on the arms of octopuses have cells that 
are capable of taste and those that are capable of touch. They talk about how those cells can detect a variety of chemicals and create a complex taste map. And there's a terrifying video of a little crab that is glued to a board and you see the octopus's arms reach in underneath a barrier and touch the crab and sense it and know it is know it is food and not an inanimate object. And uh, well, the crab doesn't fare doesn't fare well. So I thought that was really interesting. I think that's cool because th- that would solve part of the COVID problem. That if we could taste with our arms, <laughs> we could go to restaurants and stay masked and eat. Well, maybe we couldn't eat, but we could taste. <laughs> Just stick your arm in the vat of wine, say, well, that's a lovely Chardonnay, and you'd never have to take your mask off. Your whole arm. (laughs) Make it easier to drive after, too, actually. Wow, it's really solved a lot of problems. Oh, no, because the octopus cop would put (laughs) pieces of paper on your arms and say, yeah, you've been drinking. (laughs) It'd be like a little plexiglass or something you had to put your suckers down on and then pull them off. (laughs) Anyway, octopuses are cool, and maybe they came from outer space. I think that's the takeaway of this nerd out. Yeah. What about you, Michael? Have you been nerding out about octopuses? Yeah. So my internet is also about <laughs> octopuses. Um, <laughs> uh, actually, mine is uh, about contact tracers. So back in the summer, me and my friends decided to pick up spike ball as our outdoor physical activity that we could do together. And I used to laugh at people that played at it because it looks very silly and it is very silly. It's a very silly game, but it's really easy to learn, really easy to pick up. And for me, living alone this year has been like super challenging. Even if I do have introvert tendencies, all of my work is very social and I need physical activity. So this is our thing, spike ball. Now we are recording this in the beginning of November and this episode will likely be released in January. So it's hard to say what this landscape is going to be like. But last week, my friend that we played with tested positive for COVID. So what that means is that all of us that played were contacted by the contact tracer, by the same contact tracer that talked to all of us and interviewed all of us. And I found that kind of interesting because we were put into a special category because they had no data on people (laughs) playing spike ball and if that (laughs) was prone to uh, transmission. So I think this is very interesting, even if it is um, a little disconcerting, and I have been, you know, a little bit on edge this week, because we're all having this collective moment when we talk to the contact tracer, and we're all talking to each other on chat about like our symptoms, none of us are showing any symptoms, so that's good. And I seem to be talking lightly about this, it is a bit stressful. But it's also interesting knowing that right now we're in the middle of a really interesting science story, like a giant science experiment. And I think that there's something about that, about thinking about that perspective, about everything that we do on this planet is a big science experiment in the universe. And all of the actions are like data points. And it's just that right now the stakes just seem super high for us because they're affecting our daily lives. But there are other things that we are doing, you know, of course, like carbon emissions, et cetera, that um, are affecting this planet. And I think, you know, if we start thinking more about this science experiment that we're in, 
I think that we can maybe have some lasting change, like hopefully we will have when it comes to this COVID-19 pandemic. And that's me giving positive uh, optimism that I know that uh, according to previous episode, uh, Travis, as we get older, especially older males, uh, we are prone to be pessimistic. Here's me being optimistic. Uh, So shout out to all of the contact tracers. Shout out to all of the doctors who are working on the vaccine. Let's wear our masks. Let's be socially distant and be hopeful for the future. Jay, uh, thank you so much for uh, joining us on Nerd and About. You have written many books. You're doing lots of promotion for them. Where can people get these books? Where can people learn more about uh, what you're up to? Well, you know, I think you can order them online and they're going to be in Chapters Indigo and uh, probably in, in independent bookstores, however many of those are still here after COVID, and even uh, places like Costco. Anyway, thanks for uh, letting me nerd out with you guys. Yeah, that was really delightful. Thank you for spending your time with us. And thank you, everybody, for listening. If you want to hear more from us, you can follow us on our socials at NerdNightYVR on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. We'll be back in a couple weeks. And until we meet again, Q-U-A-O-T-U-I. Quit using all of those useless initialisms. (laughs) 